G'day. My name is Matt Bartlett. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm going to be preaching from this part of God's Word. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us, and thank you that you've given us your Word. Through it, you speak to us and instruct us. Uh, Lord, as we examine here in Ephesians 5, uh, please give us uh, ears to hear what you're saying and eyes to see and, and hearts that are willing to understand and take, take to heart what you'd have us learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Don't you love it when a new child is born? You know, from whether it's, you know, your own child or someone that you love, someone in your family or just a friend, just, you know, everyone loves it when a, when a child's born. It's pretty awesome. And from that first time we, we initially meet the baby, we're all really keen to establish who the child is like, aren't we? You know, oh, he's got his dad's eyes. Oh, isn't that lovely? That's, that's his mum's smile. Oh, there's granddad's nose, you know. We've all done that, right? Every time we meet a new baby, that's what we do. And then even as the kids grow up uh, and they start to develop their own personality, parents still want to establish where their kids get their, their characteristics from. Oh, he didn't get that stubbornness from me. Oh, but he did get his good looks from me, though. Um, today's Father's Day, and I'm a dad, and it's, and it's pretty cool. And one of the things I really love about being a dad is when I see my children being like me. Um, so I love it that my daughter, Georgia, uh, that, that she just loves stories and make-believe, uh, and that she's just happy to sit quietly by herself in her own little world, just like I am. I, I really love that in her. Uh, and my son, Tom, I love that he loves Star Wars and, and basketball, <laughs> And I love that he's musical. And I even love that he has that kind of weird streak that I have that sometimes just makes you go, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> For parents, it's lovely when your child wants to be like you uh, and to imitate you uh, in some way. And, and it can actually be quite an honour. You know, you'll, you'll hear it sometimes in those tear-jerking speeches that are often made at, at weddings and special anniversaries and birthday parties and stuff like that when, when someone honours their parents by declaring that they want to be like them. You know, that when they grow up, they want to they have their mum's kind and loving nature. Or they want to have their dad's wisdom and servant heart. And in moments like that, as children honour their parents by wanting to be like them, they're really special, aren't they? Now, of course, there are times when you might wish as a parent that your children were a little less like you when they pick up your negative characteristics. And also, as children of your own parents, there may be times when you wish that you were a little less like your parents in some respects. But it's unavoidable. The studies show it. Parents are by far and away the biggest influence in a child's life, like for good or for bad. Our parents make us who we are simply by being who they are. And so seeing as though... God is our heavenly parent, our heavenly father, uh, who, as it says earlier in Ephesians, um, chose us in him before the creation of the world and adopted us as his sons, his children, through Jesus. Uh, it's no real surprise that the Apostle Paul now exhorts us, along with the Ephesian church, as God's dearly loved children, to live a God-honoring life by being imitators of God. So if you have a look there in your Bibles, uh, just at chapter 5, verse 1, that's what it says. It says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself 
up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. <clears throat> so God's firstborn son, Jesus, he's set the example for the rest of God's children, us, in imitating God. And the greatest expression of this was the love that he showed uh, when he sacrificed his own life on the cross to redeem us from death and judgment. And that is a fantastic example for us to follow in being imitators of God. But not only is it an an example for us to follow, Jesus' actions on the cross, they actually have a profound impact on our identity, our identity as the people of God. Uh, And we've seen it through Ephesians so far. We've seen that in Christ, we actually have a new identity. Now we're saved. We weren't saved before, now we are. We're, We're now members of the body of Christ. Citizens of his eternal kingdom, we have been made new in the attitude of our minds, having put on the new self created to be like God. No longer are we dead objects of God's wrath. That's our old identity. That's that's the old life that was corrupted by sin. Rather, now through Jesus, we've been made alive and called sons of God. That's our identity now. And so as God's children, Paul says, well, we ought to reflect that in the way that we live. We ought to imitate God. It's like we've become members of a team, Team Jesus. And uh, and Jesus is our, our team captain. Actually, he's pretty much everything. He's the coach. He's the team owner. He's the CEO. He's the major sponsor. And we're, we're, we're the team members uh, who've been drafted into this Team Jesus We've been kitted out in our, in our glowing white team jerseys. And now we're playing the game of life. We're trying to live life, a God-honoring life in light of the grace that he's shown us. But like any, uh, any team playing any game, uh, if we're going to play the game effectively, then we need a game plan. Have you ever watched a team play a game without a game plan? It can be pretty atrocious. They're all over the shop. It can make you cringe. But a team that has a game plan and who manages to stick to it, well, that can be a beautiful thing to watch. And just simply by having a plan, it means that the team's chances of success are increased, isn't it? So we're Team Jesus, and if we're going to live God-honoring lives seeking to honour God and be imitators of him, then what's our game plan? Well, in our passage today... There are three thinking, three key things uh, that as God imitators, uh, we, we ought to be aiming for having as a part of our game plan. The first one is that we'll root out sin in our lives. If you have looked there uh, down at verses th- 3 to 7, so it starts off there, um, that among you there must be not even a hint of sin. And it specifies not even a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint of impurity. Not even a hint of greed. And it goes on, lists them more. Not even a hint of obscenity or foolish talk. Not even a hint of coarse joking. You know, you read a list like that and it sounds a little close to home, doesn't it? This is, this is like, this is the culture we live in. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, at this point at least, could really be retitled Paul's letter to the Australians. This basically describes the culture in which we live. 
And even though we, we're Australians, we're Christians first. We're Team Jesus. And so our game plan is that we will actively work against sin. We'll root it out of our lives. Because in, intentionally engaging in sinful activities, well, it says there, it's improper for God's holy people. Sin is out of place in the life of the church and of Christians. Active engagement in sinfulness, it's a part of the former way of life, the old, the old self, which uh, back in chapter 4, Paul tells us to put off. Put off that old self because it's been corrupted by its deceitful desires. God's people have been made new in the attitudes of their mind, restored to be imitators of God. And so therefore, there's no place for sin in the life of God's people because there's no place for sin in the kingdom of God. And so you read this, you think about it, and it potentially starts to make make us feel a little bit nervous, doesn't it? Because we know our reality. We know that from time to time, you know, we're, we're tempted by, uh, by immorality and impurity. We're, we're tempted to be a little greedy from time to time. So, so what does that mean for that, for us? That we still struggle with these things. Does it mean that, that then we're idolaters who, who God will refuse entry into his kingdom as, it, as Paul lays out there in verse five? Does sin result in automatic expulsion from the kingdom? Well, on the one hand, the answer is a definitive, yes. Yes, it does. That's exactly what's, what it means, apart from Jesus. Sin is so serious that every single one of us who is engaged in any form of immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, or any other sin, each one of us has actually forfeited our inheritance in God's kingdom. This is the serious reality of what what Paul is highlighting here in verse 5. But we can't forget that this part comes in the context of grace. That Paul has just been teaching about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin back in chapter 2, hasn't he? He's just pointed out that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who are on team Jesus, well, God doesn't base his judgment on their actions anymore. When God looks at the Christian... He doesn't see their sin, he sees their saviour. He sees a new creation which is made like him, righteous and holy. Uh, all the immorality, impurity, etc., it's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. So the Christian doesn't need to fear expulsion from God's kingdom because their sin, past, present and future, it's all been dealt with by Jesus. As I said, that's not to take away from the seriousness of sin in the life of a Christian. Paul's point here still stands. It's still improper and it's still out of place amongst God's holy people. It's, it's as out of place as if a player for the New South Wales Blues ran out onto the field wearing maroon on origin night. They just wouldn't do it, would they? It just... It's, it's a crazy thought. They would not do it. And if they did, it would be completely bizarre, be completely out of character. Uh, it, it wouldn't be consistent with who they are as New South Welshmen. Blues just do not wear maroon on Origin Night. It's bizarre. And likewise, it's bizarre 
and improper for Team Jesus and God's holy people to engage in sin. Rather, we seek to root it out of our lives so that there's not even a hint. That's the first aspect of our game plan for living the God-honoring life. The second is that we'll have nothing to do with darkness, but rather we'll live as children of light. Uh, If you have a look there at verses 8 to 14. Uh, Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. God's people do have a past, right? A past where we didn't know God, we were dead in transgressions and sin, we were blind, stumbling around in darkness. But that is no longer true of us. Darkness is no longer a part of who we are. Actually, the Apostle John says it well in in 1 John, uh, chapter 1, he says that God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, well, we lie. We do not live by the truth. Darkness is for those who are still separated from God, still ignorant of the grace that he's shown them. But that's no longer us, because Team Jesus has been enlightened by the truth of the gospel. It's like the Holy Spirit has switched a light on, and the darkness has fled. Now we are in the light, so we ought to live as children of light. It's like the difference between a moth and a cockroach. You know what the difference between a moth and a cockroach is, right? Anyone, does anyone know? Anyone want to have a guess? No one's willing? Paul, what do you reckon? Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the difference. If you didn't hear it, the difference is that when you turn on a light in a darkened room, the cockroaches scatter away as fast as they can back into the darkness. You've seen it happen before, right? You know, you'll walk into the kitchen late at night for a drink or whatever, you turn on a light and then you see cockroaches dart across the floor, back into the darkness. And then you dart into the laundry or whatever and get that industrial-sized can of mortine. Cockroaches, when the light's turned on, they scamper away back into the dark. But moths, on the other hand, they don't do that. They don't retreat to the dark. They're attracted to the light. They fly straight for it. They flap around it. They can't get enough of it. They're like light-obsessed freaks. It's a little crazy sometimes. The point is, as Christians, we're more like moths than we are like cockroaches, which I'm sure you'll be glad to hear, because who wants to be a cockroach? God's children are children of light. They're all about engaging in goodness, righteousness, truth, according to verse 9. They devote themselves to finding out what pleases their Lord... And when they find out, they put all their energy and effort into living that way. Children of light avoid having anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, they expose those fruitless deeds because that's what light does. It exposes what's darkened, makes visible what's in the darkness. If you go into a dark room and want to see what's behind the darkness, you turn on the light and the dark, what's in the darkness is revealed. And that's what Christians are like. Uh, we expose darkness. Now, I don't think that this means that as Christians we should run around with a spiritual flashlight trying to point out everyone's sin. You know, like putting everyone under one of those interrogation lights that you see in the cop movies, you know, trying to get everyone to fess up to their dark deeds. I don't think that's what it means. 
I think it means that we get, that as we go about life in this world, we get our light source, which is Jesus and the gospel of grace, and, and we shine it, we, we proclaim it into any and every situation. Is there someone living in darkness? Well, proclaim the gospel of Jesus to them. Is a, a, a Christian brother or sister struggling to trust God? Well, point them to Jesus and preach the gospel of grace to them. Are you questioning your faith? Well, pick up a Bible and remember the gospel of truth, that God became flesh in Jesus and he died to save you. Christians have been given the light of the world. We no longer live in darkness. Rather, we channel the light in order to expose darkness. We seek to live as children of light. And that's the second part of our game plan, to live a God-honouring life. Finally, the third part, verses 15 to 20, is that we will be filled with God's spirit. Now, on a global level, the church has been accused of being filled with all sorts of things, hasn't it? Filled with hypocrisy, filled with lies, filled with greed, and plenty of other unpleasant things. And of course, not all these accusations, unfortunately, have been unfounded. And for Christians, on an individual level, we also have the inclination to to fill ourselves with all sorts of unhelpful things, don't we? as we, just like everyone else, do things like binge watch one unhelpful television show after the other or spend hours like just trawling through Facebook or filling ourselves with with all the goss from the latest trashy magazines. There's endless options of things that we can fill ourselves with. And here Paul points to one specifically. He points to the inclination of some to fill themselves with alcohol. But for Christians... Seeking to live a God-honoring life, uh, Christians who want to know what the what the Lord's will is, as verse 17 puts it, well, our game plan from verse 18 is that we will be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, there are different ways that this spiritfulness can be seen in a Christian. Of course, you might be familiar with that passage from Galatians 5, which is which tell us the fruit of the Spirit. A love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Got all nine. I have to do, I have to use the fingers, otherwise I can't get them all out. Um, and you know, that, that's an indication of, of the Spirit's work in, in Christians, right? And elsewhere in the Bible, earlier in Ephesians, uh, Paul draws a parallel between the Spirit and, uh, wisdom and revelation. But in particular here in chapter five, the things that Paul points out which characterize the Spirit-filled Christians, is their inclination to praise God and give thanks for everything in all situations. This is the will of God, that his people are filled with his spirit and express it through thanks and praise. And you can understand that because isn't it awesome when someone honours you by by giving thanks for what you've done for them? I remember a little while ago, Gemma, I came home and Gemma was telling me that she'd just been on the phone to Centrelink um, trying to sort out some stuff, uh, we, we, you know, we'd had kids, and so apparently, if you're Australian and have kids, you have access to the parenting payment, and so that was trying to be sorted out. Gemma was speaking to a lady on the phone about it, and after uh, various information had been exchanged, the lady on the phone told Gem how much that that we would be receiving as part of the parenting payment, and it was actually quite a bit more than we were expecting that we should be entitled to. 
And so just hearing this filled Gemma with such gratitude that it led her to give thanks and praise. You know, she told the lady on the phone just how thankful she was that, that we would be just getting money just for having kids. And she thanked the, the woman for, um, for, for helping us get access to the money. And you know what? The lady from Centrelink was gobsmacked. <laughs> Utterly gobsmacked. It blew her mind that someone was being thankful for this. Because up until that point, she hadn't experienced that. She'd only experienced the, the people that she's helped. The thing that they shared with her was not thanks. It was discontent and anger because they felt that they were entitled to more money. Isn't that sad? Thankfulness and praise is not something that characterizes most people in our world. They'll grumble and they'll complain because they feel entitled to more. But thanks and praise definitively are characteristics of spirit-filled Christians. Because we know that we're not actually entitled to anything good. The truth is, we're entitled to God's wrath because of our rejection of him through sin. And so understanding the grace that's been shown to us, how could we be anything but full of thanks and praise in all circumstances. God has gone to such great depth to redeem us and make us new. And so we honour him as we give thanks to him from a spirit-filled heart. And so there you have it. That's our three-point game plan for living a God-honouring life. If, as his dearly loved children, we're going to be effective imitators of God who follow Jesus' example, then we'll, one... Root out sin in our lives so that not even a hint remains. Two, we'll have nothing to do with darkness, or rather we'll live as children of light, as those who have been enlightened by the gospel of truth. And three, we'll be filled with God's spirit, leading us to live lives of thanks and praise in all situations. Let's finish by, by praying now. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and that through it you teach us and instruct us, you build us up. Thank you uh, for calling us out of darkness and into your wonderful light as your children. Lord, we pray that you would help us be imitators of you. Help us to, to root out sin in our lives and help us to live as children of light. And Lord, we ask that you would so fill us with your spirit that we can't help but give you thanks and praise all the time in all situations. And thank you that you hear our prayers and we'll answer them. Amen.